Well, you'll notice a poem that's printed out as a separate sheet in your welcome folder. I'd ask that you would take that out for us. We're going to, I'll read it and I'd like you to follow along this morning. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore, but all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Billy Collins, he is a former poet laureate of the United States um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And in his poem, Introduction to Poetry, he shows us what poetry, unlike any of the other arts and literature, can really do so well. In poetry, the pen becomes a paintbrush. I mean... You see, with just a few well-placed words, thousands of images come into our minds to the point that even as you're reading, you forget that you're reading words at all. It's like streams of images from one to the next with good poetry. And I was thinking about this as we enter into our poetry series, um, reading through scripture, and there was an interesting article that came out and how our minds work when we're reading images. It's called... A flying, or imagine a flying pig, how words take shape in our brain. And the researcher, Benjamin Bergen, he did a series of tests on how word images are interpreted by our brains. He put people under MRIs and scanned their brains as they were reading or hearing different words. And he noticed that our entire brains, they dance when we read these phrases with images. For example, he says, if someone read a sentence like, the shortstop threw the ball to first base, Parts of the brain dedicated to vision and movement would light up. And then he says, the question was why? They're just listening to language. Why would they be preparing to act? Why would they be thinking that they were seeing something? The brain appears to be taking words, which are just arbitrary symbols, and translating them into things we can see or hear or actually do. For example, we can even do this with things that don't exist. And he goes on to explain, when somebody says the word flying pig, What comes into your mind? You know, you're not thinking of F-L-Y-I-N-G-P-I-G, are you? You're thinking of some pink pig, possibly pink, maybe brown if you grew up on a farm. And and it has this white wings above the shoulders, and it's flying in the air, right? You think of an image. You don't think of how the letters are interconnected to one another. That's the way our brains work, and the same is true when we're reading poetry. It grabs our imaginations. This is the power of poetry. Whether it's a haiku, whether it's a song that you heard on the radio, right? This is the common form of poetry that all of us tap into. Whether it's um, a proverb by a farmer in the field, um, or whether it's a psalm within scripture, the ancient songs of the Israelites. Well-crafted poetry, it beckons us to live inside of its images. It encounters us. It draws us into a world that doesn't just let us admire and move on if we do long to understand what the poem means. And so, this week we transition. We've been uh, journeying since January 1st. If this is your first time here with us, we've been reading through the storyline of Scripture as a community at all four of our campuses. We started in Genesis, 
And so we worked through, our, through history. We worked through the beginnings of God's people and God's world. And we worked through the history of Israel. And now we find some of the finest masterpieces of literature in the known world. We find Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And when we come to them, we have to come with a poetic lens. We can't read them like we're reading the history of the Old Testament people. We can't read it like we're reading the beginnings of the world. You have to come with a poetic mindset. Many times biblical interpreters talk about genre. Okay, genre. It's a type of literature. And so you come expecting different things, looking for different things in this particular type of scripture. And so, for example, throughout Scripture, we've seen what? We've seen this, this image uh, where, where we come to a point in our lives, and I'm going to be using the notepad. You'll notice that we don't have the, uh, the, the PowerPoint today. With Screenland moving out, um, things are a little more in flux, but we're going, to, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're using a notepad to stimulate, and those who are kiddos among us, you get to imitate this on your note sheets if you want to get that treasure chest toy. So we find ourselves at a fork in the road, right? Throughout Scripture, this metaphor for life is described as a journey. And there are only two ways. Scripture doesn't give us any other options. There's either, uh, and here's whoever you are. It's the generic person here. Um, you either are on the way of flourishing, the flourishing, Great penmanship, isn't it? The flourishing or the way of destruction. The way destruction. This is shorthand. Um, Hopefully I can spell. So the way of flourishing or the way of destruction. And there's no other option. And and frequently this is described throughout Scripture. We saw this earlier when we were in Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy 30? And we showed the video of Kid President where he said, and he brought up Robert Frost's, you know, uh, the diverging of paths, and I took the one that was less traveled, and it hurt, man, you know? That's where we find this metaphor, beginning with Moses in chapter 30 of his sermon to the people, and then he climbs up a mountain and he dies. And then we follow throughout the history of Israel, and every time Israel has to make a decision, they're making a decision between these two paths. Will they trust God? and go the way of flourishing, or will they disobey God and trust in themselves and choose the way of destruction? Well, when we get to Psalm 1, we find the fullest expression of this idea in this poetic form. And instead of of diverging paths, we find diverging images. The way of flourishing becomes the way of the tree, right? The way of the tree. Great. Great. You know, we're in an artistic community in Crossroads, and I know everybody would be very pumped about this drawing. Um, The way of flourishing is the way of the tree. And then the way of destruction is described as chaff. If if you're wondering what that is, whether that's dust or rain, that's chaff. It's the way of chaff. And, And the way of the tree is the way of flourishing. It's the way life was designed to be, the way of success and happiness. But the way of destruction is the way of temporary reality, the way of endness, the way that will only last for a short while and then end in pain and hurt. Well, unlike um, much of modern poetry, of which Billy Collins is an example, um, our poem, Psalm 1, it's guiding us to truth. It's not just about feeling, but it's about finding. Many times in modern poetry, it's just about feeling the aesthetics of the images. 
journeying through the pages, but it has nothing to tell you about truth. Not so with Scripture. Scripture is always guiding us to a greater picture of who our God is and who we are and how we can know Him better. So here, when we find Psalm 1, the main idea of this poem is be the tree. I know it sounds a little bit like Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, but that's our idea, is to be, be the tree. Okay? I mean, if you've never read Psalm 1 before, and this was your first time hearing it, you could probably memorize it in about 20 minutes max. I mean, it's such an easy psalm. It's short, it's simple. First read through, everybody knows they want to be the tree, right? Who here is like, man, I can't wait to be that chaff, right? Nobody wants to be the chaff. Everybody wants to be the tree. But the big, the million-dollar question is how do you be the tree? How is this psalm guiding us into greater truth, into a deeper relationship with the creator of the universe, our God? Well, this morning, we're going to walk through this poem, and we're going to see these two paths now becoming two diverging images And as we walk through, we're going to see three sets of contrasts, okay? And this is going to set us up. As we're reading through this week, we're going to be reading through the Psalter. We're going to be reading through different chapters and different Psalms. And so we're going to be learning a couple techniques to really dive deep into the Psalms. Because like we said, we have to come with a poetic lens, right? So we have to come at it slightly different as Hebrew poetry guides us. Well, we're going to see three contrasts that are going to guide us here. And in these three contrasts, we're going to see a tree has good soil. Good soil. It has consistent fruit. And it has no end. Oh, man, this is so legible, isn't it? So we have good soil, consistent fruit, and no end. And as we walk through these contrasts, we'll see that. But before we do, let's just spend a moment in prayer before we dive into the beauty of this poem as God's Holy Spirit works through the writer of this psalm to guide us in greater understanding of who our God is and who we are and how we can grow in our relationship with Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for poetry. For some of us in here, that's not our favorite medium to meet You. Um, We'd rather hear a story. We'd rather have the facts. Um, But you've worked through all these different forms of literature to express who you are and to guide us into a greater intimacy of knowing how you've designed us and how you're guiding us to live the life we were designed to live. May we have ears to hear, hearts that are willing to understand, and minds that are longing for the truth this morning. Holy Spirit, guide us. Lord Jesus, may you be known. And Father, may you be glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, although the picture of the tree doesn't show up until verse 3 of our psalm, we do see that any living tree must have good soil, right? And the the two soil options that we're given are clearly the word or the world. The word... Or the world. Oops. So soils is our first contrast here. Soils. The word or the world. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
Now, from the get-go, what is so encouraging about this psalm, as you begin this 150 psalm psalter, the first word is blessed. The first word is blessed. Now, what does that mean? I mean, every now and then we hear somebody say, have a blessed day, but what on earth does that mean? Blessed, it carries the connotations of more of happiness or joy-filled life, a consistent joy or flourishing. When life is lived the way we're designed to live, it flourishes, it grows, it produces, it continues in health. And God hasn't left us here to just grow up in the dark on how to live the way we were designed to live. He's guiding us. He's saying, blessed is the man. Be the tree. Be the tree. And even this first word here now in our culture, when we see the word blessed is the man, we think, okay, this is sexist. Where's the women? You know, where's the children? But really, this is a generic term capturing all of humanity. So flourishing is the person, you could say, or happy or joy-filled is the person. Oh, you little sprout, do you want to know how to grow into a flourishing tree? Well, you've got to find the right soil, good soil. And what we see first is that not all soil is good. It's not an equal opportunity planter. You know, it's like if you plant it anywhere, you're going you're gonna to grow into this beautiful tree. Not so, not so. Look here first, uh, in in verse 1, the poet warns us first where not to plant ourselves, right? One of the most common Hebrew tools that you're going to wrestle through as you're reading through Psalms this week is the Hebrew tool of parallelism. Many times in our modern-day poetry, we use rhyme, right, to create poetry, to have this rhythm. Not so within the Hebrew mindset, and this is the reason why. Many times we carry our Bibles with us, Mine happens to be right over here. We carry our Bibles with us, and we have the written word at our fingertips. This is a great beauty from the printing press and now from copy machines and so on. But in in, in the time of ancient Israel, they didn't have that. Very few people actually had a copy of the written word. Most of it was transferred orally. You told the stories to your children and your children's children. And how would you remember? That's still a teaching tool today. Repetition is the key to learning. And parallelism is repeating it in different forms, okay? So one form of parallelism is where you repeat the same thing, but slightly differently. So you're saying, okay, this this purse has flowers. This purse has beautiful flowers. So it repeats the same thing, but slightly differently. The other form is it can repeat the same thing and then repeat the opposite. So it could say, this purse has flowers, And then we could say, but this chair doesn't have flowers. And so you're building a bigger picture. The third form of repetition is that it intensifies. So it could say, this purse has beautiful flowers. And then it would say, this carrying bag has gorgeous flowers that scream of magnolias. And so in the repetition, the picture becomes more explosive. Okay, so this form of parallelism, as we're reading through, you'll notice it's like, he seems like he's saying the same thing. It's because he is, but he's saying it differently, painting this magnificent picture in our minds that we can carry it with us. It's the beauty of poetry, right? Images that stimulate our minds, that make them dance in aspects that we never thought were possible. So this first form of bad soil that we see here is in this threefold parallel of three terms and three lines. Ooh, this is intense. I mean, the poet's starting out big time here. And if you look even in your welcome folder or in your copies of Scripture, you can look at the second, the third, and the fourth line. He says, Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You have this parallelism, and you wonder, 
This is a robust picture he's painting here. What does this mean? What does it mean to not walk in the counsels of, of the wicked? What does it mean to not stand in the way of sinners? What does it mean to not sit in the seat of scoffers? And as we look at our broken world, it can't mean this. It can't mean that we cannot rub shoulders with those who have disobeyed God's laws, disobeyed God's ways, and even pushed God away. That can't be what it means. Even Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and the Pharisees begin to, you know, freak out. They're like, what? Is, what? Does he not know Psalm 1? You know, this is, we're not supposed to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We're not supposed to stand in the way of sinners. We're not supposed to sit in the seat of scoffers. And what we see, actually, in this psalm is it's not talking about interaction. It's not talking about interaction. It's talking about influence. We don't allow the teaching, the guidance, and the, the way of the world to be our primary guide on how we see the rest of our lives. Rather, we find the Word as that primary soil that we're digging into. So, we first see that, that the teaching implies this, this not allowing the world to be our primary influence rather than not interacting. But what is the good soil like? One would expect, you know, this is, poetry is very web-like. It's not very linear, um, but we're trying to, to bring this linear design here to, to the poem for clarity. Um, but what you see here is this, in the parallel, you would expect him to say, okay, if you're not going to walk, stand, and sit here, you want to walk, stand, and sit with this community, right? You would expect that if this was the opposite. But what does he say? He doesn't talk about another community yet. He says, the one who flourishes finds his delight in the law of the Lord. The word is the place his ears are turned, and the word is the ultimate place of guidance in his life, such that he meditates on its rich truths day and night. I mean, this is the good soil right here. This is the place where trees are made. So I ask you this morning, where are you planted? Who are you listening to? Who's influencing your decisions in life? Who's your primary guide on how you view sex? Who's your primary guide on how you view money? How you view your work? How you view your family? I mean, these are questions we ask, and we all have influences that are guiding the way we live, whether we want to admit them or not. And... (laughs) And as hard as I want to push back against this truth, it's, it's very clear in our lives. Inputs affect outputs, right? What you're taking in, it's that old statement, garbage in, garbage out. I don't know. My parents told me this growing up throughout life. But that's what we see here in the poem. Where you're at, what you're taking in, what you're allowing to influence as your primary decision-making guide is going to guide the rest of your life. Where are you walking, standing, and sitting? Be the tree. Be the tree. We love the Bible around here at Christ Community. I mean, so much so that we gather once a week on Sundays, and what do we talk out of? We don't talk out of my own personal experience. Our guide is ultimately where God's Word is. This is our primary guide. It's, we're so passionate about it that we even get into community groups on a couple times out of the month, and we guide our discussion around God's Word. We have men's and women's Bible studies because we're passionate about God's Word guiding our lives. Even so, that it's one of our core five values, right? The Bible. It's we believe the Bible reveals God's design for all of life, so we need to be in it. It's also why this year we're reading and trying to call all of us to read at least one chapter out of God's Word a day, to be cultivating the good soil in our own hearts and lives, digging roots down deep in the nutrients that are rich, that feed our souls and guide us into flourishing. So be the tree. Be the tree. But notice how his delight takes form. 
He has this delight, this enjoyment in the, in, in the, the law of the Lord. And, and the action that comes out is meditation. Now, many times when we think of meditation, we think of quiet reflection, right? Well, the Hebrew word here carries the idea of murmuring or muttering. It's this actual vocalization of the law of the Lord. It's repetitively vocalizing the, the words throughout the day. It's not just internally. It's kind of like when you bite into that perfect steak. I love steak. So when you bite into that perfect steak and you chew very slowly because you want it to touch every one of your taste buds and you chew it slowly and as soon as you ingest that piece of steak, you've got the next one ready to bite because it's so delicious. You take your time. You, you, you enjoy the delicacies and the intricacies of those flavors. Well, that's the kind of idea that we're talking about with meditation here. It's, it's chewing over the word, chewing it throughout the day, allowing the flavors of its goodness, and as God has revealed who he is, to fulfill your appetite for fulfillment for, and, and guiding you in love and even success. We're all chewing on something. We all are eating something to survive. The question is, what are we chewing on? What are we ingesting? And throughout, um, throughout, the, uh, throughout our daily lives, um, we have to ask ourselves, are we speaking scripture into ourselves? There's a particular discipline, an older discipline, called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. Some of you may know this. But Lectio Divina was a spiritual discipline where they would read the scripture out loud in a group of five to ten, very slowly. And so they would say, blessed is the man. And then they would pause and think upon those words. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then they would pause. It's this very contemplative, but they're still vocalizing the scripture that they're reading. Thinking through. Allowing it to soak deep down within their hearts rather than sprinting through the pages to check it off their list. We need to dig our roots down deep into the good soil. And in the flourishing life, it's a lot like real estate, right? It's all about location, location, location. Where's the good soil? Who's defining the good life, the full life, the perfect life for you? Well, when we come to verses 3 and 4, as we move on now in our poem, we find the diverging images of the tree and the chaff really take shape. And with their consistent or inconsistent fruit, as it comes here. So our next contrast is the two different kinds of fruit that come from these two different types of paths. And trees, what do they do? They contribute shade, right? They're nice to sit underneath when the sun is hot. They're a great uh, resource for oxygen in our world. We talk about this on a frequent basis. They help stop soil erosion. I mean, there's so many things trees do very well. But one of the biggest things for us as human beings is that they produce fruit, right? They give us food, whether they be fruit trees or nut trees, and which is a type of fruit. But, um, so let's look in verses. We're going to begin in verse 1. And each time we come to each one of these contrasts, we're going to actually start with verse 1 and move our way through. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, in the Midwest, we've got trees everywhere, don't we? I mean, you just walk outside, and even in the city, we've got them lining on different parts of our sidewalks and, 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 and streets. But in, in the Middle East, very few trees in certain pockets, right? The Middle East is a desert. 
It's a place where the text says a tree must survive when it's planted by streams of water. And what is it saying there? It's not just some happenstance stream. This is actually talking of irrigation canals. If, if a tree was to survive in the Middle East, it would be planted by these irrigation canals by a farmer so that the tree would survive and thrive. And without this irrigation, the tree has no chance. So streams of, of water is talking about, in the Hebrew, it's talking about these irrigation canals. And with, with, but when planted by the streams of water in the middle of the des- desert, look at the language it's used there. Not even the leaves wither off of the tree. It's sustained no matter what weather is surrounding it. The word of God, it's described as life-giving waters that sustain a man, a woman, or child for flourishing and fulfillment. It's the soil on the banks of the stream that are rich with the nutrients for a healthy life so that no matter whether it's winter, whether it's spring, whether it's summer, or whether it's fall, there's no worry that the tree will not be standing. It will be standing tall. So the flourishing, though, isn't... Here's something else. There's a lot going on in this psalm, and what's so beautiful is that the flourishing of the tree isn't some special reward, okay? And that God's like, oh, now that you've done this, I'm going to bless you. It's rather the fact that we understand this is how God's designed his good world. We plant ourselves in his word. He guides us in the way of flourishing, but it's a natural result of being planted in the right spot. It's not as though God is saying, well, you happen to be here, and so I'm going to do this special work in you. It's saying, Anybody who plants themselves here, this is what's going to happen. This is the fruit that will be produced. It's this consistent, consistent fruit. But being a flourishing tree doesn't mean life is going to be easy, right? It's still got the hot winds of the desert blowing across in the Middle East. It still has, you know, this surrounding land that looks bleak and it looks barren. But it has the stream. It has the stream that keeps it growing, keeps it producing its fruit, not all the time either, in its season. It's not producing fruit in summer, winter, spring, and fall, but it's producing its fruit in the right season. And if you look in Jeremiah, he was a prophet who experienced tons of deserts of denial and rejection when he was called to proclaim God's word. And in uh, Jeremiah 17, verses 7 through 8, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts is, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I remember um, when I was younger, after my dad had left our family, and it was my mom and my sister were still in the house. Um, my older sister was married. And it was my sister and I and my mom, and I remember my mom was, I mean, so anxious about what was going to happen to us. She'd never worked a day in her life in a corporate setting, but she knew she needed to go back and get a job to pay for our food, to pay for our bills. And I remember multiple times coming out of my room and finding my mom just pouring over her scriptures, pouring over her Bible, praying and weeping. And it didn't matter what was happening in her life, she still carried forth this joy that superseded her circumstances. She still carried forth a kindness despite her trouble because of what God was doing because she found, she knew where to plant herself. She planted herself near the streams of life-giving water. She planted herself in the good soils and the dividends that that paid. I still, I mean, my sister and I, 
both my sisters and I still talk about how that was finally, that was a picture of faith through hard times that gave us the realization that faith is real, that it's powerful, that God protects his people and sustains his people. It's not just because we believe in God that everything's going to be easy, by far. I mean, this is, this, is, this is an example of brokenness. And she felt lonely, but she was never alone. She felt the heat of the desert, but she was always feeling the streams flowing through her life. And it was a guide for my sister and I on what it looked like to follow Christ and to plant yourself in the good soil. And so parents, I ask you this morning, the fruitful life will only come by putting yourself in the word daily. And your kids are watching. So are you planting yourself in the good soil? Are you planting yourself? Be the tree. Plant yourself in good soil. Or you'll be the chaff, which is the opposite of fruitfulness. I mean, the chaff is what's left over. And I even have this uh, as an example here. We've got some wheat stalks. The chaff, yeah, this is getting interesting, right? We've got the, the wheat stalks here. The chaff is what happens when the wheat berries are separated. Let's see if I can get this. And the wind would blow. This is going to be messy, so we'll have to vacuum afterwards. But the wind would blow in the deserts of Israel, and the wheat, the, the, the kernels of the wheat would stay, but the chaff would become dust with the rest of the desert. Temporary, very, very shallow, very much worthless is the viewpoint of chaff throughout Scripture. And so if you're not a tree that's sustained by the rivers and the streams of God's Word, you become chaff, what's blown away, what's worthless, it's garbage, it's nothing. This is the extensive reality of this image that the poet's trying to portray. If you're not a tree, you're chaff. There is no other option. So what, so what is your fruit? That's the question we ask ourselves. How is your life different because of your time in the Word? How are you loving your neighbor? Are you just reading the Word but not doing anything about it? James has some things to say about that. How do, you, how do you love? What do your dates look like? Are you guarding your relationships? What are you modeling for your children? What flows out of you in seasons of harvest? What flows out of you in seasons of drought? Do your leaves wither? Are you allowing the life-giving waters to flow throughout your entire life? Well, if we move to verses 5 and 6, we find our final contrast And as we look at the two futures of these images, we see their ends can't be any any more different. You see, the image of the chaff is one that perishes. But the tree, it has no end. So you could image this by having a continual arrow, but down here... little gravesite. I know, we try to do image, right? I never said I was a good artist. But that, so we have the continuing. A tree has no end in the poem, but chaff, it's temporary, it's worthless, and it perishes. And would you read with me all of Psalm 1 together, out loud, as we seek to meditate, right, to vocalize this psalm as a community. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When it says the wicked, uh, excellent job by the way, uh, will not stand in the judgment, the poet is reflecting on a common cultural uh, uh, situation where, where someone was given the floor to speak their piece in a courtroom setting. And so here, the wicked will not even be given a voice when the end comes. That seems kind of harsh when you first read it. But we have to remember the whole story that we read in those first verses. They've scoffed at God's ways long enough. They've scoffed in his face and they've made fun and they've poked at and they've prodded God's people long enough to the point they no longer are given a voice to even defend themselves. They've chosen their path of destruction. And here in the psalm, they're not even given a voice. Also, they won't be able to join in the righteous community. Now the righteous community comes up to the surface. It's not just about me reading God's word by myself, but it's part of a community, right? They've chosen to perish in the desert, the wicked have. And they've excluded themselves from God and his people. It's as Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We can be so convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is right, that this is the way we should go, but if it doesn't line up with God's law, it's leading to death. I mean, here's the truth, though. We're all going to die, but we won't all perish. Hebrews says it's appointed to every man to die once. But what about the righteous? At the end of this poem, there's this ambiguous uh, lack of discussion about what happens to them, right? It's almost as though the tree just continues to grow on and on and on, watching generations of animals perish around it as it looks over the forest. The tree knows no end, and this is also very interesting, because God knows them. We have another unexpected twist in our parallelism, right? Um, God, knowing the way of the righteous, is placed in parallel with the wicked perishing. To not be known by God is to perish, but to be known. Not to know about God, to know facts about God, but to be known by God is to live, is to endure, is to flourish. Also, this isn't as though God, you know, it's not, when, when, when it's talking about God knowing us, it's not that God knows stats about us. I mean, he does. It's not like he's saying, oh, Gabe, oh yeah, I know him, he's 6'1", he's 165 pounds, he's got brown, high, brown hair, green eyes, He's one of the good ones. He likes soccer. Yes. Very blessed is he. But this guy, Johnny, over in Gainesville, Florida, I don't know anything about him. Sorry, bro. It's just not going to work out. It's not about just stats. God knows the stats on everybody. So what is this knowing? What is this all about? It's, it's this relational knowing. It's this being able to see through your friend's smile when you know they're going through brokenness knowing. It's, it's relational. It's doing life together knowing. It has to do with proximity and intimacy that 
comes through trust and journeying together. And so the end of the psalm, it leaves us with a question, where are you heading? Where are you heading? Who you know and who knows you determines which path you'll grow into. What are you spending your life on? Where are you putting your roots down? Will it last? What will your kids remember about you? Kids, where are you planting your lives early to grow? Trees, they know their creator. And why do they know their creator? Because they know what he's like, because he feels like the cool streams that they've planted themselves by. He refreshes like the living waters that flow out of God's word. He is the fountainhead to all that is life. So be the tree. I think the hardest reality, though, of this psalm is that we all know we aren't the tree. <laughs> we transplant, transplant ourselves by the streams um, and then into the desert and then back to the streams and then into the desert, so much so that we look like a sorry, you know, forest of shrubs that are barely shriveling trying to make it. I mean, no one has lived this psalm out perfectly. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, no one until God himself became human. Jesus Christ, the God-man, I mean, he so lived into this psalm that he could truthfully proclaim to the world that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the flourishing, the life. In John 14, 6, he didn't just walk the path, he defines the path. He didn't merely plant himself near the streams, He is the tree of life and the life-giving waters, he describes himself. In John chapter 1, John describes Christ as the word became flesh among us. And he is the sequoia, you know, surrounded by these little maple saplings. No one compares to Christ. He lived into this psalm perfectly. But Jesus not only modeled what it meant to be the tree who we were designed to be, what it looks like to be fully human as God desires us to be. But he also carried our tree. All of us this morning would be on the path to perishing, the path of destruction. But God, breaking into our death, pays our penalty, and then through his blood makes it even possible for us to enter the way of flourishing. The cross of Christ is the way that, is, that makes possible for us to live the life we were designed to live. The cross makes possible the life we were designed to live. Blessed is the person who delights in Jesus Christ and who meditates on the gospel day and night. The Lord intimately knows this way because he tread it for us, right? So I ask you this morning, are you rooted in Christ? Does your fruit reflect it? This is our calling as the body of Christ, to grow up into beautiful, joy-filled trees, a forest that knows no end. You know, Joyce Kilmer, she was a poet from the early 20th century, she writes in her poem called Trees, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing chest, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives within rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree.
Only God in Christ can make you a tree. We look and we find great despair over our own brokenness and how many times we've listened to the counsel of the wicked. How many times we've stood in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of scoffers. But God broke into our death and made a way for us to flourish by drinking deeply of Christ, who is the living, the living streams, the Word become flesh. Will you let him this morning? Will you let him? Well, in just a moment, as a forest of God's people, because of Christ, we're going to gather around a table that led Jesus to his death on a tree. A time of communion, a time of remembrance of all that he's accomplished for us, And here at Christ Community, you don't have to be a member of this church to partake of the Lord's table. We ask rather that you would have submitted your life to Jesus Christ under his lordship, his rule, and have confessed your sins to God Almighty and found forgiveness in the shed blood of Jesus. If this is a commitment you haven't made, perhaps use this time to continue to think about those questions. To think about where you are and where you're heading Think about where your fruit is and where you're planted. What's keeping you where you are? And do you realize where it is really taking you? Maybe this is your moment. Maybe this is the time you get off this path and join the path to flourishing. Maybe even you come to this table this morning as a symbol of the new life you've embraced. We'd love to have you join us this morning. But before we do that, let's take a moment to reflect silently on the questions we've been wrestling through, all of us as a community. So think about, just for a moment, be praying through, where are you planted? Where is your fruit? And where are you headed?